from Brooklyn, New York. I'm Adam Teeter, and this is a Vine Pair Next Round Conversation. Today, we're talking with Justin Pass, the founder of Sarah Luce Venetian Spritz. Justin, what's going on, man? How's it going, Adam? It's uh, great to be here. Thank you so much for having me. How are you? Of course, dude. Good, man. You and I started talking about a year ago, uh, I think when you were first launching uh, the Spritz. So, you know, well ahead of the game at that point, I might say. Well ahead of the game. Now it feels like, you know, this canned cocktail craze is everywhere. It sure is. But I wanted to I wanted to talk to you a little bit about sort of, you know, your background uh, and, and how you decided to create this in the first place. Yeah. So I'll give you kind of the, the quick and dirty of it. I uh, graduated college longer ago than I'd like to remember. That was uh, <laughs> t- 2003. Um, and, and the year before that, actually, I was, um, I was really fortunate to be able to do a semester in Florence, Italy, um, which is funny because I, I actually I wanted to go to South America. I was like, I want to go. And, you know, I was an anthropology minor. I wanted to go see if I could live with some indigenous tribe in, in South America. And then 9-11 happened and my right. options for going abroad were quickly uh, cut down. And uh, an older sister, and she'd gone to London. A lot of her friends had gone to Italy and she absolutely loves Florence. She's like, you have to go. You're going to love Florence. You love food because I've been, in, been into food my whole life. But Italy is where I really kind of started to connect it all. Is, you know, whereas in the past it was like, I like to cook and I enjoy it. And I like going to good restaurants and trying new foods. You know, really a lot of the cultural aspects and the history of food and just, you know, how much more is is there than just you know things that we eat that we like to taste right that's where it really all started to come together for me as flash forward a few years i ended up going to culinary school i graduated from cia in 2008 uh, that's the culinary institute of america for those who don't know uh up in upstate new york and then uh i cooked for a little bit but really when i was at school um that's when i really got started to get serious about wine and become very, very interested in, in all the wines of the world. And shortly after entering the restaurant business, I made a quick pivot not too far over into the wine business where I was for about 10 years um, as a rep with uh, some of the real big distributors, but also spent most of my career with um, a company called The Country Vintner, which is now part of Winebow. And I was a fine wine rep both here in DC and out in LA for a little bit as well. Very cool. Very cool. So my career background, and then in terms of Sarah Luce, my my wife, who's also my uh, part time business partner, and that she she has a full time gig, but she uh, she works in uh, documentary television, and um, we that's one of the reasons we had moved out to L A. And when we decided to move back to the East Coast, uh, you know, we knew that on some level we wanted to start a business. It's something I, I come from a family of entrepreneurs, and it was something that had always uh, been of interest to me. And but having spent many years in in uh, wine distribution, I. I didn't think I, you know, the import game was for me. It, it just seemed like a really, really crowded space. It takes a ton of money to to get into, um, and I wanted to try something different. And and so, you know, I'd love to say that there was this like moment of oh my god, I've loved spritzes forever, and you know, just couldn't wait to make my own spritz. And that's not entirely true. Well, <laughs> I did. I and I love, you know, I I'd, I'd come across the Aperol spritz, um, you know, certainly by name, where I I could really kind of understand what it was. Um, probably in the early early teens, I think I'd maybe had it when I was abroad, and probably as a twenty year old, I, I if I had it, I probably didn't like it. I certainly knew I didn't like right. Campari at the time. But uh, yeah, I uh, you know I had seen its growth and popularity. I, I liked the beverage, but you know at the time, this RTD space was really new. The canned wine space was really new, um, and I was kind of surprised that uh, there wasn't something that existed within this cocktail space. So we looked into it and looked at what the, the competition was out there and assessed it all and decided we could do better than what was out there. Uh, so we set about 
creating this company and it's, it's, I, I can't, I don't want to bore you with the details. It's, you know, basically a year and a half of research and reaching out to people and finding the right partners, which we've been really lucky in, in that regard um, to find some great manufacturing partners, um, some great, just our team across the board. I'm really happy with um, some great distribution partners. And so you uh, didn't know how to do any of this before you had the idea. No, my, you know, my, my knowledge <laughs> of wine production was obviously, you know, spend 10 years in the wine industry, you know, you visit a lot of wineries, you know, a lot about it. You learn a little bit about the regulation just in terms of usually when you're selling wine, you learn about regulation only when something happens that holds up a product or, um, you know, something comes up where it, regulation tends to be uh, a huge obstacle, but, you know, regulation and compliance is obviously a big part of that. So we spent uh, a lot of time researching that. And, and one of the reasons I bring that up, because it, it sounds boring and on some level it is, but it really, it, to an extent, it does play into our strategy and that we're a wine-based cocktail. Okay. But yeah, no, to answer your question, I, I knew nothing about this. This was purely like a, just like, let's see where we can go. Let's bootstrap this and learn everything we can in the shortest amount of time possible. And that's what we did without sacrificing quality. I want to point that out because I think at the end of the day, if you were like, I want to get a can of beverage into a can in three months and get it onto market, you could do it. I don't think you could do it well. I think a lot of people do try and do it and I don't think they do it well. Um, that being so said, what do you mean? What do you mean by that? Is it just because you don't think it ta- it's the taste isn't there yet or from a taste standpoint? Yeah. I mean, it's, 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 there's a lot of trial and error with this, right? Um, it's figuring out because, because as much as, you know, I, I love wine, but I also love cocktails, um, making a cocktail. And I, I, you know, I know you've spoken with a number of producers who make RTDs. It's not yeah. as simple as just mixing these things together, putting it in a can and slapping a label on it. You know, there's a lot of things that happen in that can. Once you start mixing things together, you have to make it shelf stable. Um, so it's, you know, it's, it's a little more complicated than all that, you know, your alcohol levels, your sugar levels, all that scientific stuff that's involved. You have to, you have to factor for that. So, okay. again, this is all stuff that we had to learn as we went. Um, but, you know, figuring out what's going to work, what's going to hold up in, in a can is it's, it's in some ways, obviously, you know, you're you're constantly testing things. And I think having the right experience and palate certainly comes into it. But that's kind of just the beginning of it. And then figuring because you do have certain constraints that you're not going to necessarily have as, you know, a, a bartender or a mixologist. Yep. So, I mean, why did you decide you you have this background in wine? Mm-hmm. Why why a spritz? Why not say, hey, I'm going to do canned rosé, or I'm going to do sparkling wine in a can, or things like that? What what was it about the spritz? Like, had you you know what research did you do in terms of? And you can tell me, maybe Adam, I didn't do any, but I'm assuming you did <laughs> no, uh, I, to, I to did. recognize that this was like an opportunity. Because I think that you know, around the time that you were doing this or starting this, right? The only spritz I knew that was popular even two years ago was just Aperol. Sure. Right? So did you ever think – what made you so confident that people would drink a spritz that wasn't made with Aperol? Were you already seeing that happening elsewhere? Um, and yeah, why the spritz in the first place? I mean certainly. I mean you go to Italy, Aperol – like let's you know, let, let's first address what I call the, the 800-pound orangutan in the room because yep. the color. Um, <laughs> that, you know – there's there's no doubt that Aperol is, you know, the dominant player in this space, in the aperitivo uh, liquor space. I know they're, you know, planning on uh, launching their own RTD in U- the U.S. this year. They actually have had it in Europe for a number of years. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I'm kind of a person who looks at something like that where someone's the absolute dominant player. And I don't, like, I, I hate the word disruptor because I think Silicon Valley has unfortunately bastardized it a little bit. Totally. I think, you know, while there's always going to be a market leader, I, I, I think 
certainly um, as Americans, you know, as, as people who like competition and, and don't like to see dominance by, you know, one party, one company, there's always going to be an in, even if there's a number one player. So my feeling there was, you know, let's get into this space, but let's also do it in a space that we felt that, you know, perhaps we could do it better. You know, I don't, I don't want to disparage any other product. Um, I, I think, I think Aperol makes a fantastic product. I, I, I drink Aperol. I have, I have a bottle in my bar all the time. Number one, it's different, right? So we wanted to address this space, but like, just like, you know, if you go into the gin space, there are many different styles of gin. You know, if you're looking at us from a flavor profile standpoint, there are certainly some similarities, but you know, we're more citrus, you know, we're more citrus and orange dominant. They tend to be, you know, I think they lean a little bit heavier into their herbal notes, a little bit heavier into their rhubarb. We have all those things, but it's different proportions. And, and at the end of the day, I think we differentiate ourselves enough in a flavor profile that, you know, while you may have this one dominant player at the end of the day, it's not realistic that everyone is going to like this one thing and one thing only, um, you know, so we kind of want to offer, we, we see it as an opportunity and Hey, here's this big player coming into this. What's a relatively new space in the U S you know, let's help expand that category. And, and, you know, in doing it as an RTD, as opposed to, and there are plenty of really great, you know, artisanal aperitivo producers out there, um, you know, boutique distillers who are who are focusing on liqueurs and doing you know some aperitivi or some digestivi we kind of came at it from this angle of well you know i think that that's a little bit more challenging to get into a bar program if you know they already want to do uh if, if they're already going to be able to get aperol and the customers know aperol so our strategy is a little bit more let's come at this in a place where they're not already the dominant player you know, which is this RTD space, which I think, you know, as we see, I don't like it's, this is not a fad that's going to go away quickly. Right. right. I think this RTD thing is very much here to stay. 100% um, agree. And, you know, and being wine based, that allows us to be in certain places that, you know, some of the, you know, the liquor producers can't be or won't be. It's just not necessarily worth their time. But, you know, I also like that being said, we're in lots of places that have full on liquor programs and they just like our product because it's a really good product because we spent a lot of time um, making it you know, it tastes good, right? Like for lack of a better word, I, I don't, it's, and it's very different. It's weird because you come from the wine world and so much of it is about, you know, respecting the grapes and, and, and working with what you have in terms of land. And this is, you know, I'm very straight about this It's about developing a product that we think people are going to like that tastes good. So let's talk about that product development a little bit. So um, you said it's wine-based. Did you, so, I mean, I guess to, to dispel what people might think just listening to this, does that mean it's just like, Aperol flavored wine, um, you know, is it, is it going to taste like a wine when you taste it? Like, what do you mean when you say it's wine based and how did you go about developing the product? Yeah, absolutely. So when I say it's wine based, that means that it means two things. One wine is the predominant ingredient in it as it is, as it is in most spritzes, you know, you're going to, you know, most spritzes are going to be, you know, at least 50% Prosecco or whatever sparkling wine they're using. Right. Um, we use a, we use a white wine from Italy called, uh, the grape is Garganega. Most people, if they know a wine called Suave, which is one of the DOCG yeah. wines, I think it's DOCG of uh, the yep. Veneto, same grape that goes uh, into there. It actually turns out to make a really great sparkling wine. Um, it has this nice crisp base, uh, has a little bit of weight to it, which is important. Obviously, you know, in crafting a cocktail, you got to take into consideration all these things, not just flavor profile, but the way that it's going to, you know, the actual sensations that it's going to have on the palate. So wait, so are you actually, you're buying wine in Italy? Yep, that's yeah, that's right. We uh, and and this is something where we uh, probably could could do more to promote. I, you know, I was listening to one of your 
podcast recently saying, you know, I think you were talking about a gin and tonic and talking about how the tonic is as important as the gin, you know, in a yep. lot of these products. Yeah. And, and really the, the wine that we use is, is, is very crucial to getting this product right. Um, the, you know, the wines of, of the old world of Europe tend to be um, a little bit, a little bit drier, a little bit less fruit forward, um, tend to have lower alcohol. And really it's just, it's, it's a very different taste experience in, in, in blending this cocktail. That's, that's pretty, um, that's a key component of getting it right. So yeah, so we bring in our wine in bulk. Um, we bring it into uh, a winery in the Finger Lakes, and then we we do our final blending with our with our botanicals and other ingredients there. So you add botanicals to the wine. Yeah, we do. So that's it's, so it's almost like a vermouth. It's very much. It's actually the process is very much like a vermouth, right? Interesting. I like to bring that up, to, you know, for two reasons. One, obviously, I think the the provenance of the Italian wine is in, is important. Um, can I can I go a little bit into the history of the spritz because everyone knows Please. the Aperol spritz, right? Please. So the history actually goes beyond Aperol, um, beyond selects. Actually, the first mainstream, you know, main market kind of aperitivo liqueur that people know in the industry today was, uh, I believe, it was Select. I think they were a year before Aperol, but that might be flipped around. So don't take my word on that. But that was in nineteen 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 twenty. Um, the actual history of the spritz goes back almost 100 years before that, before the unification of Italy. Italy, as we know it today, is the country shaped like a boot. That country literally didn't exist until 1865. Prior to that, I want, I'm, I'm pretty sure it's 1865. I should probably, I, it's been a while I, I, since I, I, I checked the history on that, but I'm, not, I'm very <laughs> confident. It's sometime in the 1860s. Anyway, about 30 years before that, you had this northeast region of Italy, which is now Lombardy and Piedmont. And it was actually, um, Part of, it was a kingdom that was part of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. And so at the time, you had a bunch of government officials, administrators, military, uh, merchants, etc., who had come over from uh, Austria, from Germany, into this area of what is now Northeast Italy. And uh, as, as anyone who is a, a xenophile and, you know, uh, or just a wine geek knows, the, the wines of Germany and Austria tend to be a bit lower in alcohol than those you would get in Italy. And so you had all these... Uh, you know, foreign uh, people stationed over in this part of Italy, and they weren't quite used to these wines, which they perceived as to be very high in alcohol. So they would often order them with a spritzen, which is uh, the German word for splash, a spritzen of water. Um, and interesting, that is how the the spritz got started. And then it was over time that people started adding carbonation, uh, adding different bitters, um, and you know, basically starting to create you know what was this Italian incarnation of the cocktail. Um, and then of course, you know, you, you get into these aperitivi liqueurs and adding a lot more layer and kind of getting more bang for your buck. And that's kind of how this modern incarnation of the spritz came about. Um, so oh, wow. yeah, this is all, and this is all just, again, stuff that we came up, you know, in our research over the year and a half plus process of, of creating this beverage. Um, and we thought, and we thought that was a cool story. You know, I, again, this goes back to me having this you know, realization that, you know, food is so much more than food, food's history, right? Food, like there's so many things that go into it. Um, so we just thought that was an interesting story to tell on top of making, you know, what happens to be a pretty delicious drink. So, so you bring the wine into the Finger Lakes, you're bittering it. Um, I guess you're adding botanicals. So you're basically making a vermouth, but then, I mean, I've, you sent me the product. I've tried it. It, it tastes like a spritz. So you've got to be doing, it doesn't taste, I guess what I'm trying to say is it doesn't taste like I'm drinking a vermouth um, or even a carbonated vermouth. Um, so what, what is your sort of process? Are you, um, are you allowed to add any actual spirit to it? So that's a tricky question. Um, I, 
<laughs> I, I think we talked about this a little bit. Um, you know, uh, yes and no. I, I have to be careful here because the TTB is very, um, very strict about how they uh, allow you to, to advertise your product. So um, what I can say is this, that in the United States, in the winemaking process, uh, you are allowed to um, use a portion of neutral there's, so there, it's what's it's what's called like the the, I think it's like like uh, I'm totally gonna screw this up, but if I think it's like kind in kind, it's not fortification because fortification like you would use in port or Madeira that's generally done to arrest the fermentation process, right? Um, and also add preservation. Um, but what you're basically what you're allowed to do in winemaking is you can use a small amount of spirit if the spirit comes from the same fruit. So if you're making a cider, you can actually use a portion of uh, neutral apple brandy. Uh, to adjust the alcohol level of your final product and, and really this is to, to attain consistency. So in the same realm, you can do this for grape wine as well. You use a, a neutral uh, grape distillate. What, you know, that's, that's, not, it, that's not the majority of what's in there in any wine that does this. But, you know, long story short, I can say that the TTB allows you to do this, you know, to a certain level. Um, we're doing that very much within the legal limits of that. Um, so, and, and, but that is important, you know, it's one of those things that it's, we're not necessarily, you know, legally we're not quote unquote supposed to advertise it. So I, I will say this is not an advertisement that we have uh, spirits in our product, but it is an educational component of it in that, you know, this is key to, to just, just as it's key for, you know, some producers to be able to have a very consistent alcohol level. Um, this is a key to, you know, being, being able to have the, level of the flavor profile that we want while still maintaining, you know, while still keeping it as a wine, because again, wine is, is by far the largest ingredient that, you know, proportionally that goes into this product. And I, and I note on that wine, it's good wine. I had, I had a rule from day one. I said, I'm not putting any wine in this product that, you know, is just, we're just trying to mask some bad wine. This had to be wine that I would drink as a table wine at a meal and enjoy. And, and that was harder to find than I thought. Um, I, when I first was, you know, reaching out to, to different producers and kind of explaining what I do, some of the samples that I got were, it was astonishing that people would take this and be like, oh yeah, I'll put that in a can. Um, <laughs> so yeah, that was, that was rule number one. We, I, because I'm, I, you know, I have a culinary degree. I'm, I, 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 I'm a chef by, you know, in spirit and by training, I'm a big believer that, you know, you have to start with good ingredients. There's no way of, there's no way of taking a bad ingredient and masking it with stuff to make it better. Right. It, you know, that's going to stand out. So, you know, that wine is so core to what we do again, having the right acidity, having the right mouthfeel. Um, and then we like to think that we're building upon that. Right. You know, so to answer your original question, does this taste like a wine? Um, I think it depends who you ask. I think like you said, it's right. definitely, you know, does it taste like a Sauvignon Blanc that you're going to get, you know, that's, that's super fresh and citrusy. No. Um, does it taste, you know, what, what I say, it tastes more like a vermouth. Absolutely. Another, just a side note too, you know, with this aperitivo thing, we all think of the Aperol, the Capari of the world, you know, as these liqueurs, but traditionally a lot of these, you know, there are plenty of uh, aperitivi that are, that are, that are hundred percent wine-based. Um, so, you know, it just, it, it really depends on the tradition on the area that they're coming from. So traditionally, you know, again, depending on how you look at it, this is very much a wine product. Interesting. So, um, but you are adding the flavor profiles that would make that do make it similar to a Campari, correct? Or, or give give the aspect that it is similar to, to what someone is used to if they have had Campari spritzes, Aperol spritzes, etc. 
Yeah, definitely. I mean, that's that's the like as far as far as a general category. Yeah, you know, having that that bittering agent with and and, and as well as a number of different you know herbal components, sugar. Like there's like there's I, I like to be very clear about there is sugar in our product, uh, just as there is sugar added to a liqueur. You know that that's a that's a portion of of, of what we do. And then again, you know, this dominant citrus. I one one of the, again, I I mentioned you know one of the things where I think we differentiate ourselves is that we're a little bit more in a in a citrus camp um, than some of uh, the other products out there. The orange flavor that we use is I went through um, and again I like to be clear about this. We use extracts, and and you know we're not macerating an orange peel into what we do for several reasons. One, that's that's tends to be a pretty inconsistent process and harder to control. Right. It's also a lot harder to, you know, extract the the flavor profile that you want into um, an alcohol product without without applying some some form of heat to it. And okay. as as you well know, you know, heat is a huge enemy of wine. So again, that was kind of almost, you know, that was a technical engineering challenge of how we're going to make this. It's how do we make this product without applying heat? And so, you know, using some of these very, very high quality extracts that come from, you know, they come from orange peels. The, the government makes us call it natural flavor and that's fine. But at, at the end of the day, the, you know, this citrus that you're tasting in there, that comes, that comes from these Valencia orange peels that are essentially steam distilled to a very, very high concentration. Finding that flavor, I, I, I must've bought nearly a hundred different orange flavor products on the market just so I could say, okay, here's the one that we want to hone in on. Let's how, how do we then go about and find it? Right. Interesting. And so, you know, when you pour the liquid, because I know you sent it to me last summer, so I forget, does it pour with a color or is it clear? It, it, it is a color. We, That's we what I thought. Color, okay. You know? I can't, yep. I can't, is it, so is, is it sort of pinkish red? Yeah, we're going, you know, again, I, you know, this is the, this is a very traditional thing in Italy. These aperitivi bitter uh, liqueurs across the board tend to have by tradition, a red color. There's mm-hmm. a history in there. I, 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 don't know if I actually know specifically, I, but I do know that like psychologically red, I think is, you know, can like stimulate the appetite. I think that's kind of how it got in there as a, Oh, interesting. Traditionally as a, um, it's why, why they use that color. So, you know, again, that's for us. We could have, we could have made it clear. I think, you know, we really wanted to respect the tradition of the, of, of what this product has been. And also, you know, to obviously to an extent what the consumer already associates with, with um, these products. Well, so, okay. So now, you know, we've talked a bunch about how you sort of made it, but now it's out in the market. So um, how have you gotten it out in the market and sort of what are your plans for it? Sure. Um, so we are in distribution in the Mid-Atlantic right now. Um, again, you know, that's a lot of research and meetings and finding the right distributors. Um, one of our, you know, I'm I'm old school and believing that, you know, if you want a brand to, to last, you have to be on premise in bars and restaurants as much as you are in retail. Um, I think, you know, to experience it that way. Uh, first of all, restaurants are going to make sure that you're, you know, getting it at the right temperature that you're, you know, that you're having an enjoyable experience with it. And we, we want to embrace that as much as we can. Um, you know, COVID has, COVID has been a bitch. Like COVID has been, yeah. rough. I don't like to complain about it because at the end of the day, I, you know, I have a ton of, I have a ton of friends and, and, and business associates. M- most of them are in the restaurant industry. It is, it's been a far worse year for a lot of them than me. So, you know, that being said, um, you know, that has certainly affected our ability to um, get in front of the consumer in the ways that we like to, both off and on premise, you know, and we're, certainly to be in bar programs, to be featured, um, has, has they, there hasn't been a lot of marketing going on in restaurants for, uh, right. for, for wine and spirits brands in the last year. Um, 
and off premise too. You know, this is at the end of the day, products are products need to be tasted. You know, beverages need right. to be tasted. Um, that being said, we, we've had some really, you know, great success with, uh, certain restaurants that have, you know, really embraced the to go cocktails and are looking for something, um, that is easy. That is, uh, that's up to their standards. This was a big thing for us, you know, coming from restaurants, I wanted something that a restaurant would be like, I would serve that no problem. And, right. and luckily, you know, that, that, um, that strategy has come to fruition. We've had some really great restaurant partners, um, particularly in the DC area, um, Ciola group is, uh, you know, this is, this is their main spritz that they're serving on their, on their cocktail menu. Uh, that's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. We're like, that's for us. Like, I, I don't know how many people outside the DC area necessarily know that group, but that's a huge honor for us. This is, uh, and, uh, Fabio Chirogi is an Italian chef. He's a James Beard award-winning chef, you know, so to be able to be featured in their program is really like, it, it's just an incredible honor. That's cool too. So that they, that they're, that you're their spritz. That's really cool. Yeah. Yeah. So they, they must see some benefits there too. Right. That like, obviously it's a quality that they know is going to be, you know, they don't have to worry about who's behind the bar, uh, in terms of ensuring that it's always going to be a, a quality spritz, which, you know, is something we've talked about a bunch on the podcast in terms of this explosion of RTDs of, will you see more of them, uh, you know, go into bar programs because of that consistency. And I feel like you're sort of helping reinforce that thinking that, that that's probably going to happen. Yeah, it's definitely the consistency factor. I think it's definitely, you know, it's, it's a balance of, of, of having a bar program that um, they're not necessarily super overwhelmed all the time. Um mm-hmm. But really, I think it's just a testament to our product because they, yeah. they're they the type of place, they, they have the luxury if they need to spend, you know, a minute and a half on every cocktail, they can and they will. Um, but they just, they like our product and, and saw it. And this is another thing I, I you know, I, I don't, again, I don't want to say anything about any other product. One of the things that I was very intentional about um, in, in you know, crafting the, the flavor profile of this is I wanted something that also goes with food, you know. Italy right. food and wine go together. Like, yes, we think maybe we think of the aperitivo as something you have before a meal, but that's not even generally something that you're going to have alone. Most times, if you have an aperitivo cocktail, you're having some food with it too. So, you know, a lot of these these cocktails, while they're great, I think sometimes they can be almost too cloying, too overwhelming. We were all about balancing this so that it's a super tasty product that you know people. It, it's something that people are familiar with when they taste it to an extent. But also, you have this with food. Like, you're going to be able to sit there. And have a meal with this and not feel like it's overpowering your food or even worse maybe you don't even think about it but it is overpowering your food and making it not taste as good so we really wanted to be cognizant of that and making sure that whatever you know the applications are that a consumer or restaurant tour wants you know with our product um they're going to be comfortable using it cool very cool well this has been a really really interesting conversation uh justin i think that you know um what you're up to is really cool um, the liquid's delicious. Um, you know, what are, you know, where would you like to see the brand? And like, well, so, I mean, I think we, you know, you people used to ask the question, like, where do you see it in five years? But I think with COVID we've realized that that's, uh, <laughs> no one knows what's gonna happen in five years. Right. Um, so, you know, what about in the next like two years or so, where would you like to see the brand? What are your plans? Certainly expand distribution. Um, we, you know, we've consciously held back on that, um, uh-huh. you know, during COVID it's, it's, I don't want to say it's easy to get into other markets, but you know, you, you push enough, you can find a distributor anywhere. That's really not the name of the game, though. Just because you can be sold anywhere doesn't mean you're going to be. But certainly, you know, that's something that we want to start to um, ramp up again. I, 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 I would definitely like to see us just again have you know 
be this alternative on on premise and be something that you know or if you're a wine a, a restaurant or a store that has a beer and wine only license a product that you can that can be sold there i definitely you know are we going to be in a household name in two years wow that would be great it, I, I like to be realistic right. in my expectations but yeah there's that and uh people often ask me are we going to expand the line that's definitely in the in the plans for the future but but not immediately again i think you know we have this niche category here that i really want to um continue to be a strong player and as opposed to just, you know, going wide. But as you said, with COVID, you never know, like we're, we're, we're all having to pivot constantly um, these days and you just, you have no idea. So we keep an open mind. That's for sure. Very cool. Well, Justin, thanks again so much for joining me. I really appreciate it. It's been super cool to chat with you and, and learn more about Sarah Luce. And uh, I wish you all the best of luck. Adam, thanks so much for having me. Thanks so much for listening to the Vine Pair Podcast. If you love this show as much as we love making it, then please leave us a rating or review on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever it is you get your podcasts. It really helps everyone else discover the show. Now for the credits. Vine Pair is produced and recorded in New York City and Seattle, Washington by myself and Zach Jabal, who does all the editing and loves to get the credit. Also... I would love to give a special shout out to my VinePair co-founder, Josh Mallon, for helping me make all this possible. And also to Keith Beavers, VinePair Tasting Director, who is additionally a producer on this show. I also want to, of course, thank every other member of the VinePair team who are instrumental in all of the ideas that go into making this show every week. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you again.